Again, good morning. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. We're glad that you're spending part of your holiday season with us as we get closer and closer to Christmas. Now, as we've discussed the past two Sundays, Advent is a time of both looking back and looking ahead. We do that because we live in the time between Jesus' two arrivals. The first arrival happened a long time ago in Bethlehem, and the second arrival hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting. But this morning, we focus primarily on the first part, looking back. We'll do that by spending most of our time this morning in Luke chapters 1 and 2, reading the classic story of Jesus' birth. Now, of all the major holidays in our society, all the things that we celebrate— And not just the Christian holidays. None of them plays to a sense of nostalgia quite as much as Christmas. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines nostalgia as a wistful or excessively sentimental yearning for return to some past period or irrecoverable condition. We often associate nostalgia with homesickness, the desire to return to a place that meant much to us in the past. And again, for many of us, this holiday, Christmas, lives and breathes nostalgia. Christmas carols make us dream of a white Christmas, just like the ones we used to know. And we sing that song and we mean it, even if we've never even experienced a white Christmas. Frank Sinatra sang about an old-fashioned Christmas. In one line, he sings, Give me an old-fashioned fireplace. My heart remembers smoldering embers, warming your glow. I trade the whole Manhattan skyline, the shimmering steel and chrome, for just one old-fashioned Christmas back home. Sounds so touching, doesn't it? This week I read an article about the high demand for ceramic Christmas trees, the kind that were particularly popular in the 1970s and 1980s. It turns out if you have one of those ceramic Christmas trees, you can make pretty good money off of them. In that article, Vintage Lifestyle Expert, which is just another way of calling what Shelley Denny does at Connor Prairie, Vintage Lifestyle Expert Bob Richter said this, Ceramic Christmas trees have become more popular recently because the younger generation is feeling nostalgic for the ones they had at home as kids. At the holidays, everybody wants one because it reminds them of the past. And it's a recent thing within the past couple of years. Everyone's thinking, oh, my mom had this. My aunt had this. So I want one. Basically, you're buying nostalgia. When you buy one of these ceramic Christmas trees, you're buying the memory. Now, there's nothing wrong with nostalgia in small doses. I'm all for fondly looking back and remembering good times. But part of the problem with nostalgia is that it can be very selective. As we look back with nostalgia on the way things used to be, we're tempted to only remember the good parts. We intentionally overlook or even subconsciously suppress the challenges and frustrations of those old times, old places, and old people. We like to remember the good Christmases, sitting around the fireplace like in Frank Sinatra's song. But we want to forget the ones where we didn't have enough money to buy presents for the kids. Or the one where Uncle Ned got drunk and yelled at his new wife 
or the first Christmas after grandma passed away and her chair at the table was empty. Nostalgia is very selective. And if we're not careful, and if we let the sense of nostalgia get too strong, we may end up with an inaccurate and overly romantic view of the past. Even worse than that, we may find ourselves foolishly trying to recreate that ideal past in the present. But when we do that, we're only disappointed because we quickly learn that things can never really be the same as they once were. But it's not just the traditional Christmas celebrations that appeal to a sense of nostalgia. Trees and fireplaces and carols and cards. Christians like us can make the same mistake when we look back on the story of Jesus' birth. We may remember the cute parts of the story that look nice on Christmas cards. We admire the whitewashed nativity scene on the end table at home. It's easy to focus all of our attention on angels and stars and a stable and shepherds and wise men bringing perfectly wrapped gifts for baby Jesus. In other words, we may look back at the birth of Christ with a wistful and overly sentimental attitude and then proceed to sweep the not-so-sentimental details of Jesus' birth under the rug. But this morning, I hope we can look back on the story of Jesus' birth in its entirety. And that includes the less-than-attractive, nitty-gritty details of how, where, and why Jesus was born. Because looking at the dark parts of this story without blinking will make Jesus himself shine that much brighter. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Feel free to use the Bibles here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray together as a church. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Christmas is one of those times where so many of us look back fondly on the past. We miss the things that were once so special at Christmas but maybe have been taken away from us. We wish that we could bring them back into the present. We wish that they hadn't gone away. And so Christmas can be a bittersweet time uh, for many of us. But there are others in this room who look back on Christmas, and we don't really have any good memories. We have only pain and sorrow and loss and needs that were never met. And so, Father, I pray that no matter where we are this Christmas, uh, whether it's a holiday that we love and look back on fondly or whether it's a holiday that we dread, I pray that you would be with us as we look back at the story of Jesus' birth, the real reason for this holiday to begin with. I pray that we would look at it with open eyes, and I pray that we would read the story in its entirety and let this incredibly powerful story have its full impact on our hearts and minds. Thank you that we get the privilege to celebrate the coming of Christ into our world. Be with us this morning as we do that. Be with us in the weeks ahead as we continue to do that, especially as Christmas approaches. We love you. We worship you. We thank you for Jesus. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Reading Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel 
was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Our story picks up with God summoning a young couple to his service. Mary and Joseph aren't quite husband and wife yet. They're betrothed. That word betrothed means that while they aren't technically married, they're more than just what we would call engaged. The Gospel of Luke presents Mary as a relatively unremarkable young woman, likely a teenager at this time. Joseph is probably a little bit older and presented as an upstanding young Jewish man from the line of David. But because these two aren't married yet, these lovebirds haven't shared a bed. The passage repeatedly stresses that Mary is a virgin. But then along comes Gabriel, announcing that Mary is favored by God. Now, why is she favored? So far, she hasn't done anything of note. She's been presented as just another run-of-the-mill Jewish girl. Well, the favor that God shows Mary is an act of his grace. In fact, the word translated favored is a form of the word grace. The point is that Mary didn't do anything to earn this message from Gabriel. She didn't do anything to earn this good standing with God. She's simply a passive recipient of God's grace. But then once Gabriel gets past the pleasantries, he tells Mary that she will have a baby, just like her relative Elizabeth. And like Elizabeth's son John, Mary's son will also have a special calling from God. His name, Jesus, means God saves. He's referred to as God's son. He'll be the promised king of Israel from David's line, and he will reign forever. If you thought expectations for John the Baptist were high, they pale in comparison to expectations for Jesus. But unlike John, Jesus will not be born through natural means. John really was the son of his father, Zechariah. But Jesus will not really be the son of Joseph. Because Mary will conceive this baby through the work of the Holy Spirit. 
She and Joseph don't need to move the wedding date up. In fact, they don't need to do anything. It will all be a work of God's power. And of course, Gabriel recognizes just how far-fetched this all sounds. So he reassures Mary that nothing is impossible with God. If God can give a baby to a barren woman like Elizabeth, then why not take the next step and give a baby to a virgin? Now, Mary's response to this overwhelming news is one that Christians like us would do well to remember more than just once a year. Because her response is a breathtaking example of discipleship. Mary humbly and faithfully submits herself to God's purposes. She basically looks at Gabriel and says, Okay, God, whatever you say, I'm at your disposal. Here I am. Do with me what you see fit. She doesn't appear to think twice about the plans, the goals, the dreams that this unplanned pregnancy might put on the back burner. She doesn't seem angry with God for the inconvenience that he's placing upon her. She doesn't try to change God's mind. She doesn't try to negotiate terms. She simply obeys. I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. But what will everyone think? Matthew's gospel tells us that Gabriel had to speak to Joseph as well in order to convince him that Mary was telling the truth. If Joseph had a hard time believing Mary, then what will their families think? What will the neighbors say? This will be nothing short of a scandal. The rumors will fly. Speculation will abound. Mary will be labeled a woman of less than noble character. And Joseph will be considered a fool for staying with her. The situation that God has thrust Mary and Joseph into, the calling he has issued them, will not be easy. But to their credit, they recognize that they are in no position to question God. Now, as we move along in the story, we jump to Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. So Jesus is born into humble circumstances. Bethlehem is Joseph's family's hometown, and it's not a total dump, but it's not exactly Jerusalem either. The city is crowded, and Mary and Joseph have a tough time finding somewhere to stay, and the baby's on the way. So picture a mudroom, a room without all the comforts of a guest room, a room that's not quite inside, but not quite outside either. It's like the part of the house where families may have kept animals during the winter when necessary it could practically double as a stable. That's where the much-celebrated, long-awaited, Son of the Most High, Eternal King, enters our world. It's not exactly royalty by earthly standards. And then that same night, Mary and Joseph get some unexpected visitors. These rugged local shepherds only enter the picture because they got their own message from God. They heard angels sing about the birth of Jesus, and they ordered them to visit Jesus' makeshift crib. And the shepherds share with Mary and Joseph what the angels told them, that their baby would be good news of great joy for all the people. But interestingly, Mary doesn't give much of a response. In fact, she doesn't say anything. She just takes it all in. Perhaps she and Joseph were a mix of confused, amazed, overwhelmed, scared, and exhausted. After all, they didn't have epidurals back then. The point is that the expectations for Jesus are growing. Gabriel says that he will be the eternal king of Israel. The shepherds claim that Jesus' birth caused the angels of heaven to burst into song. What more can possibly be said about this baby? So far, it's been a wonderful story, one that we would love to read, one that our kids would love to hear on Christmas Eve. Mary and Joseph obey, the angels sing, the shepherds worship. It's all so warm and all so touching. But here's the thing. The only parts we've covered so far are the parts that we like. I mean, sure, the origin of the baby is a little strange, Mary and Joseph likely took some heat from people around them for the circumstances of her pregnancy. And yes, Jesus' surroundings are humble, to say the least, to put it nicely. But that rustic atmosphere may have even had a certain charm to it. So far, the story has been relatively tame. But that's not where the story ends. Other parts of the story come along that aren't quite so warm and aren't quite so romantic. Because once Mary and Joseph leave the comforts of the delivery room, once the calendar changes to a day after, 
a week after, a few months after. In the time following Jesus' birth, things happened that Mary and Joseph may not have remembered quite so fondly. Things that don't fit very well in Christmas cards and nativity scenes. One of them is Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, according to what is said in the law, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And Simeon came in the Spirit into the temple. And when Mary and Joseph brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord... Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Aw. Verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So this guy Simeon has been waiting and waiting and waiting for the day that he would finally meet the Savior. But when Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple for that first time, Simeon's wait is finally over. He rejoices and declares that he can now die in peace. And that's all well and good, right? The shepherds basically said the same thing. But then Simeon keeps going. And for the first time, the story of Jesus' birth takes a sudden, dark turn. Simeon's words become quickly ominous. A sign that is opposed. He says Jesus will cause many in Israel to fall. Someday Mary will feel as though a sword has pierced her very soul. What could he be talking about? Matthew gives us an even darker look at Jesus' arrival with more details. King Herod tries to kill Jesus. He's your classic paranoid ruler, worried about anyone who would dare question his place on the throne. He even tries to trick the three wise men into helping him get rid of Jesus. But thankfully, God thwarts Herod's plot. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, this perfect little family that we all love from nativity scenes, have to flee to Egypt for their lives. And then in one final, desperate, gruesome attempt to kill Jesus, Herod has baby boys around Bethlehem slaughtered. It's only after Herod dies that the Holy Family can even attempt to return home and settle in the city of Nazareth. Now, are there warm, moving, inspiring, and even comforting scenes 
in the story of Jesus' birth? Of course there are. We learn that Jesus is the Son of the Most High, the eternal King of Israel. He's the angel's joy and the shepherd's hope and good news to all the world. We look at Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and see wonderful examples of humility, faith, and obedience. We see the sovereignty and power of God, the one who sends angels with glorious messages of grace to sinners, the one who summons regular, unremarkable, run-of-the-mill people to play a part in his story of salvation. He's the God who can hang a star in the sky in just the right place at just the right time, the one who can faithfully provide for his servants. Those are all good things. Wonderful scenes. But there are also scenes that disturb us. There are ugly details, horrific events, and evil people that we are tempted to ignore as we remember the story. But we shouldn't forget about the public shame that Mary and Joseph likely experienced throughout the pregnancy and probably beyond. We shouldn't forget Simeon's cryptic prophecy about Jesus' future suffering and the pain that Mary would one day experience. We shouldn't forget the part about the maniacal, bloodthirsty king willing to kill Jesus and countless other nameless, faceless baby boys, all for the sake of maintaining his power. And we shouldn't forget the part about Mary and Joseph hiding out in Egypt with their baby, worrying that today might be the day that Herod finally finds them. In other words, if you're looking for a Christmas story that's all glamour, glory, and glitter, this is not the story for you. Because the full story of Jesus' birth is not for the faint of heart. So as we look back at Jesus' first arrival this Christmas, don't do it selectively. Don't remember it with a naive, inaccurate, unrealistic, or overly romantic sense of nostalgia. The reality is that the Son of God came into a fallen, broken, and corrupt world, full of cold, dark sin and death. And it's only by God's grace that anyone in this world would ever even come to accept the Lord and Savior that he sends. Don't forget those parts of the story. You know, the beginning of Jesus' life wasn't all glorious. And then when the time comes for Jesus' life to end, none of it looks glorious. He begins his life amidst rumors that he was an illegitimate child. And he ends his life mocked as an illegitimate king. He began his life laying on the cold, rugged wood of a manger and ends his life hanging on the blood-soaked, rugged wood of a cross. He began his life surrounded by animals and ends it surrounded by criminals. The beginning of his life is marked by a star in the sky, but at the end of his life, the sky goes dark. Mary is even there to see the crucifixion. And I'm sure as those nails pierced Jesus' hands and feet, Simeon's words in the temple probably came roaring back to her. Watching her son die must have felt like a soul, a sword was piercing her soul. But here's the good news. It's through this sometimes wild, often uncomfortable, 
roller coaster ride of a story that no man could possibly make up that sinners are saved. It's through this baby's life, death, and resurrection that Satan, sin, and death are defeated. And it's only because Jesus was born into all the ugliness and bitterness of our fallen world and yet was without sin, died on the cross for our sins, and rose from the grave. It's only because of that that those who believe in him can inherit the eternal glory of heaven and spend eternity singing of his glory with the same angels that the shepherds saw. And while we shouldn't ignore or suppress the less-than-glamorous, sobering, and ominous realities of the story of Jesus' birth, they don't take away the great wonder, awe, and joy that we feel as we read it. In fact, they enhance the wonder, the awe, and the joy. This story of Jesus' birth is an essential part of the story of your salvation and my salvation. And even with all its warts, this story is far better than any nostalgic Christmas stories and memories that we could ever muster up. It's better than singing about sitting around a fireplace. It's better than a white Christmas. It's better than all these sentimental things that we think about when it comes to Christmas. It isn't overly romantic, and sometimes it is uncomfortable. But it is the best story that we will ever read any day of the year. And it's the best story that we could ever read around Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story that we often think that we know so well. And then once every 12 months or so, around this time, we maybe open it up, we maybe spend a few minutes reading it, and all of a sudden we remember things that we forgot. We remember that this story isn't some perfect little fairy tale. It's not just something that is meant to make us feel better about ourselves or make us feel tender inside. This is a story of knit and grit and ugliness and pain and suffering. And so, Father, as we look back on this story that has so often been tamed and domesticated, I pray that we would read it in its entirety and that in doing so, we would have all the more reason to glorify you. That we can see that even in the brokenness and the fallenness and the horrors of our world, you work your glory out. You work our salvation out through your son, Jesus Christ. And again, that is great cause for wonder, awe, and joy for each of us this Christmas. Father, we love you. We honor you. We honor your son from the beginning of his life to the end of his life, to his resurrection, and to his return that we still look forward to. We honor you, and we honor your son. We ask this all in his name. Amen.